Book Seven, The Church of the Social Revolution, Part One, of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Church of the Social Revolution. They have taken the tomb of our comrade Christ, infidel hordes that believe not in man. Stable and stall for his birth sufficed, but his tomb is built on a kingly plan. They have hedged him round with pomp and parade, they have buried him deep under steel and stone. But we come leading the great crusade to give our comrade back to his own. Waddell Christ and Caesar in the most deeply significant of the legends concerning Jesus, we are told how the devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give unto thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus, as we know, answered and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And he really meant it. He would have nothing to do with worldly glory, with temporal power. He chose the career of a revolutionary agitator, and died the death of a disturber of the peace. And for two or three centuries his church followed in his footsteps, cherishing his proletarian gospel. The early Christians had all things in common except women. They lived as social outcasts, hiding in deserted catacombs and being thrown to lions and boiled in oil. But the devil is a subtle worm. He does not give up at one defeat, for he knows human nature and the strength of the forces which battle for him. He failed to get Jesus, but he came again to get Jesus' church. He came when, through the power of the new revolutionary idea, the church had won a position of tremendous power in the decaying Roman Empire and the subtle worm assumed the guise of no less a person than the emperor himself, suggesting that he should become a convert to the new faith, so that the church and he might work together for the greater glory of God. The bishops and fathers of the church, ambitious for their organization, fell for this scheme, and Satan went off laughing to himself. He had got everything he had asked from Jesus three hundred years before. He had got the world's greatest religion. How complete and swift was his success, you may judge from the fact that fifty years later we find the Emperor Valentinian compelled to pass an edict limiting the donations of emotional females to the church in Rome. From that time on, Christianity has been what I have shown in this book, the chief of the enemies of social progress. 
From the days of Constantine to the days of Bismarck and Mark Hanna, Christ and Caesar have been one, and the Church has been the shield and armor of predatory economic might, with only one qualification to be noted, that the Church has never been able to suppress entirely the memory of her proletarian founder. She has done her best, of course. We have seen how her scholars twist his words out of their sense, and the Catholic Church even goes so far as to keep to the use of a dead language so that her victims may not hear the words of Jesus in a form they can understand. "'Tis well that such seditious songs are sung only by priests and in the Latin tongue." But in spite of this, the history of the Church has been one incessant struggle with upstarts and rebels who have filled themselves with the spirit of the Magnificat and the Sermon on the Mount, and of that bitterly class-conscious proletarian, James, the brother of Jesus. And here is the thing to be noted, that the factor which has given life to Christianity, which enables it to keep its hold on the hearts of men today, is precisely this new wine of faith and fervor which has been poured into it by generation after generation of poor men who live like Jesus as outcasts, and die like Jesus as criminals, and are revered like Jesus as founders and saints. The greatest of the early church fathers were bitterly fought by the church authorities of their own time. St. Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople, was turned out of office, exiled and practically martyred. St. Basil was persecuted by the Emperor Valens. St. Ambrose excommunicated the tyrannical Emperor Theodosius. St. Cyprian gave all his wealth to the poor, and was exiled and finally martyred. In the same way, most of the heretics whom the Holy Inquisition tortured and burned were proletarian rebels, the saints whom the Church reveres, the founders of the orders which gave it life for century after century, were men who sought to return to the example of the carpenter's son. Let us hear a Christian scholar on this point, Professor Rauschenbusch. The movement of Francis of Assisi, of the Waldenses, of the Humiliati, and Bon Homme, were all inspired by democratic and communistic ideals. Wycliffe was by far the greatest doctrinal reformer before the Reformation, but his eyes, too, were first opened to the doctrinal errors of the Roman Church by joining in a great national and patriotic movement against the alien domination and extortion of the Church. The Bohemian Revolt, made famous by the name of John Huss, was quite as much political and social as religious. Savonarola was a great democrat as well as a religious prophet. In his famous interview with the dying Lorenzo de' Medici, he made three demands as a condition for granting absolution. 
Of the man he demanded a living faith in God's mercy. Of the millionaire he demanded restitution of his ill-gotten wealth. Of the political usurper he demanded the restoration of the liberties of the people of Florence. It is significant that the dying sinner found it easy to assent to the first, hard to assent to the second, and impossible to concede the last. LOCUSTS AND WILD HONEY This proletarian strain in Christianity goes back to a time long before Jesus. It seems to have been inherent in the religious character of the Jews, that stubborn independence, that stiff-necked insistence on the right of a man to interview God for himself and to find out what God wants him to do. Also the inclination to find that God wants him to oppose earthly rulers and their plundering of the poor. What is it that gives to the Bible the vitality it has today? Its literary style? To say that is to display the ignorance of the cultured, for elevation of style is a by-product of passionate conviction. It is what the Jewish writers had to say, and not the way they said it, that has given them their hold upon mankind. Was it their insistence upon conscience, their fear of God as the beginning of wisdom? But that same element appears in the Babylonian Psalms, which are as eloquent and as sincere as those of the Hebrews, yet are read only by scholars. Was it their sense of the awful presence of divinity, of the soul immortal in its keeping? The Egyptians had that far more than the Hebrews, and yet we do not cherish their religious books. Or was it the love of man for all things living, the lesson of charity upon which the Catholics lay such stress? The gentle Buddha had that, and had it long before Christ. Also his priests had metaphysical subtlety, greater than that of John the Apostle or Thomas Aquinas. No. There is one thing and one only which distinguishes the Hebrew sacred writings from all others, and that is their insistent note of proletarian revolt, their furious denunciations of exploiters, and of luxury and wantonness, the vices of the rich. Of that note the Assyrian and Chaldean and Babylonian writing contain not a trace and the Egyptian hardly enough to mention. The Hindus had a trace of it, but the true, natural-born rebels of all time were the Hebrews. They were rebels against oppression in ancient Judea, as they are today in Petrograd and New York. The spirit of equality and brotherhood, which spoke through Ezekiel and Amos and Isaiah, through John the Baptist, and Jesus and James spoke in the last century through Marx and LaSalle and Juarez, and speaks today through Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Kotsky and Israel Zangwill and Morris Hilquit 
and Abraham Cahan, and Emma Goldman, and the Joseph Fells endowment. The legal rate of interest throughout the Babylonian Empire was 20%. The laws of Manu permitted 24%, while the laws of the Egyptians only stepped in to prevent more than 100%. But listen to this Hebrew law. If thy brother be waxen poor, and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no interest of him, or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him any money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. And so on, forbidding that Hebrews be sold as bond-servants, and commanding that at the end of fifty years all debtors shall have their debts forgiven, and their lands returned to them. And note that this is not the raving of agitators, the demand of a minority party, it is the law of the Hebrew land. There has been of late a great deal of new discovery concerning the early Jews. Conrad Noel summarizes the results as follows. The landmark law, which sternly forbids encroachment upon peasant rights, consideration for the foreigner, additional sanitary and food laws, tithe regulations on behalf of widows, orphans, foreigners, etc., that those who have no economic independence should eat and be satisfied, that loans should be given cheerfully, not only without any interest, but even at the risk of losing the principal. To withhold a loan because the year of release is at hand, in which the principal is no longer recoverable, is described as a grave sin. When you are compelled to free your slaves, you must give them sufficient capital to embark upon some industry which shall prevent their falling back into slavery. A number of holidays are insisted upon. There must be no more crushing of the poor out of existence, for God cares for these people who have been driven to poverty, and they shall never cease out of the land. Howbeit there shall be no poor with you, for the Lord will bless you if you will obey these laws. But then prosperity came, and culture, which meant contact with the capitalist ideas of the heathen empires. The Jews fell from the stern justice of their fathers, and so came the prophets, wild-eyed men of the people, clad in camel's hair and living upon locusts and wild honey, breaking in upon priests and kings and capitalists with their furious denunciations, and always they incited to class war and social disturbance. I quote Conrad Noel again. Nathan and Gad had been David's political advisers, Abijah had stirred Jeroboam to revolt. Elijah had resisted Ahab. 
Elisha had fanned the rebellion of Jehu. Amos thunders against the misrule of the king of Israel. Isaiah denounces the landlords and the usurers. Micah charges them with blood guiltiness. Jeremiah and the latter prophets, though they strike a more intimate note of personal repentance, strike it as the prelude to that national restoration for which they hunger as exiles. The first chapters of Isaiah are typical of the Old Testament point of view. Just as the prophets of the nineteenth century thundered against the Christian employers of Lancashire, and told them their houses were cemented with the blood of little children, so Isaiah cries against his generation. Your governing classes companion with thieves. Behold, you build up Sion with blood. Their ceremonial and their Sabbath-keeping are an abomination to God. When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Your hands are full of blood. The poor man is robbed, the rich exact usury. Woe unto you that lay house to house and field to field, that ye may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doing from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be blood-colored, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured by the sword. Mother Earth And nowadays we have the socialist and anarchist agitators, following the same tradition, possessed by the same dream as the ancient Hebrew prophets. I have mentioned Emma Goldman. It may be that the reader is not familiar with her writings, and does not realize how very biblical she is, both in point of view and style. Let me quote a few sentences from a recent issue of her paper, Mother Earth, on the subject of our ruling classes and their social responsibility. Yes, you idle rich, you may howl about what we mean to do to you. Your riches are rotten, and your fine clothes are falling from your backs. Your stocks and bonds are so tainted that the ink on them should turn to acid and eat holes in your pockets and your skins. You have piled up your dirty millions, but what wages have you paid to the poor devils of farmhands you have robbed? And do you imagine they won't remember it when the revolution comes? You loll on soft couches and amuse yourselves with your mistresses. You think you are it, and the world is yours. You send militiamen and shoot down our organizers, and we are helpless. But wait, comrades, our time is coming. 
Doubtless the reader is well satisfied that the author of this tirade is now in jail, where she can no longer defy the laws of good taste. They always put the ancient prophets in jail. That is the way to know a prophet when you meet him. Let me quote another prophet who is now behind bars, Alexander Berkman, in his Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist, discussing the same subject of plutocratic pretension. Tell me, you four hundred, where did you get it? Who gave it to you? Your grandfather, you say? Your father? Can you go all the way back and show there is no flaw anywhere in your title? I tell you that the beginning and the root of your wealth is necessarily in injustice. And why? Because nature did not make this man rich and that man poor from the start. Nature does not intend for one man to have capital and another to be a wage-slave. Nature made the earth to be cultivated by all. The idea we anarchists have of the rich is of highwaymen standing in the street and robbing everyone that passes. Or take Big Bill Haywood, chief of the IWW. Hear what he has to say in a pamphlet addressed to the harvest hands he is seeking to organize. How much farther do you plutes expect to go with your grabbing? Do you want to be the only people left on earth? Why else do you drive out the workers from all share in nature and claim everything for yourselves? The earth was made for all, rich and poor alike. Where do you get your title deeds to it? Nature gave everything for all men to use alike. It is only your robbery which makes your so-called ownership. Capital has no rights. The land belongs to nature, and we are all nature's sons. Or take Eugene V. Debs, three times candidate of the Socialist Party for president. I quote from one of his pamphlets. The propertied classes are like people who go into a public theater and refuse to let anyone else come in treating as private property what is meant for social use. If each man would take only what he needs, and leave the balance to those who have nothing, there would be no rich and no poor. The rich man is a thief. I might go on citing such quotations for many pages, but I know that Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman and Bill Haywood and Jean Debs may read this book, and I don't want them to close it in the middle and throw it at me. Therefore let me hasten to explain my poor joke. The sentiments I have been quoting are not those of our modern agitators, but of another group of ancient ones. The first is not from Emma Goldman nor did I find it in Mother Earth. I found it in the Epistle of James, believed by Orthodox authorities to have been James the brother of Jesus. It is exactly what he wrote, save that I have put it into modern phrases, and changed the swing of the sentences 
in order that those familiar with the Bible might read it without suspicion. The second passage is not in the writings of Alexander Berkman, but in those of St. John Chrysostom, most famous of the early fathers, who lived 374 to 407. The third is not from the pen of Big Bill, but from that of St. Ambrose, a father of the Latin Church, 340 to 397. And the fourth is not by Comrade Debs, but by St. Basil of the Greek Church, 329 to 379. And if the reader objects to my having fooled him for a minute or two, what will he say to the Christian Church, which has been fooling him for sixteen hundred years? End of Book 7, Part 1